0: Amen. Thank you, worship team, and let's show our appreciation for the children's ministry workers. We appreciate them as well. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, balcony. It's good to see you. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would love for you to open it out to Acts chapter two, verses fourteen to forty-one. Acts two, fourteen to forty-one. Uh, now, in in my Bible, it, I think it's the same in all ESV Bibles, but you might have a different Bible, and that's t- totally fine. Uh, in my Bible, verses 1 to 13 of Acts chapter 2 are given the title The Coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have something similar. And then verses 14 to 41 have the title Peter's Sermon at Pentecost. That's a pretty straightforward explanation or straightforward division. Uh, in essence, what we're being told there is that the first part of the chapter narrates the event. And then the second part of the chapter gives us the explanation for the event. And that's actually how uh, Revelation tends to work in the Bible. That's how a lot of your Bible is put together. Uh, there's the event, the, the epical event, and then there's the explanation. What does that mean? What's it all about? Why did that just happen? If you think about it, that's exactly how your New Testament is set up. You've got uh, four Gospels at the start of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those gospels narrate the the great events of Christ's life. Uh, They give us the the great event of Christianity, Christ on the cross. But the only reason we understand what those events mean is because of the pages of the Bible that follow. Uh, The event of the cross is is an earth-shattering event. Uh, how, How can it be that That the king of the world, that the son of David, that the Messiah, that the seed of Abraham, that the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15, how could it be that the king dies on a cross? That's jaw-dropping. And then what does it mean that three days later he rose from the dead? And what does it mean that shortly thereafter he ascended up in heaven? Those are the great events. And those are narrated for us. They're so important. You get the story told four times. And then the rest of the New Testament is basically the apostles with the help of the Holy Spirit explaining why that happens, what it means, and how you should live in response, right? That's that's how your Bible is put together, event and explanation. And of course, that's, that's how the Old Testament is put together as well. Think of the great events of the Old Testament, the Exodus. Think how much Uh, word count. How many pages are devoted to describing the Exodus? you got your your 10 plagues, right? You've got your uh, parting of the Red Sea. You've got your walls of Jericho, the whole thing. That's the event. And then there's a whole bunch of text reflecting on the significance of the event. What does it mean that God chose an insignificant group of people, slaves actually, and and chose them for himself, and did great works of power to effect their redemption. What does that mean? And then you think of the exile. The exile, of course, is the other great event in the Old Testament. What does it mean that God would take his own people, his own son, actually, because in the Bible it, it, God says, calls Israel his son. What does it mean that God would so scourge and punish his own son that he basically ground them down? to a tiny remnant and hid them away on the world's longest timeout, 70-year timeout. What does that mean? What does that tell us about the character of God? What does that tell us about God's attitude towards sin? What does that tell us about God's commitment to root out sin from the covenant community? What does that that mean? And then, then there's the return from exile. What does it mean that God brought those people back and gave them back the land they'd lost a lifetime ago? rebuilt them, reconstituted them, came to them again. What does that mean? So whatever we think the exile meant, it must not mean that God hated them. It must not mean that God ever abandons his children. It must say something about his faithfulness. But how does the faithfulness of God and the fierceness of God go together, right? A great deal of the Old Testament is dedicated to helping us understand those things. Event and explanation. That's how the Bible's put together, and that's how Acts 2 is like a microcosm of the Bible. Here we have this great event. We have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and now, of course, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, needs to stand up and tell us what this is all about. Now, some fool in the crowd offered his first impression at the end of that uh, description of the event. They are filled with new wine. Eh, Wrong answer. Sit down. Thanks for playing. That's not it. Now, definitely, people are changed, no doubt about that. There's been a huge change in these people. One of the most remarkable things in the Bible, isn't it, is the change that happens in Peter on the other side of Pentecost. Who is this guy who spends his whole life with his foot in his mouth, uh, who you know, runs away from Jesus? Who is this guy on the other side of Pentecost? How do we get that guy? Right? It's incredible. So, yes, there's been a huge change. Yes, these people have fallen under the influence of something, but it's, this is not about wine. This is about the dawning of a whole new age. That's what Peter says. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Peter in this sermon offers the authoritative, inspired, inscripturated interpretation of the miraculous events associated with the day of Pentecost. Now, it's a fairly long sermon. It's actually, it's a, Of course, this is a summary of the sermon. That we, the book of Acts records a number of the pivotal sermons that really help us understand what God is doing in the church, uh, and, and then it pr- provides summaries of those in Acts. And, of course, the summaries are much smaller than the sermons themselves. Most of the summaries you could read in five minutes, but the sermons themselves probably 45, 50 minutes. We don't, we don't know how long they were. But even this summary is fairly long. So we're going to read a big chunk of text today. Uh, prepare yourself. I don't know what that looks like. Poke the person beside you and say, prepare yourself. Here we go. Uh, we're going to start reading at verse 14. We're going to read, read this text. I love how some of you took that literally. I, I, I'm actually storing that away for future reference. I did not know that you would do that. Good. Uh, we're going to read the text, and then we're just going to try and uh, look at the three simple questions that this sermon appears to be intending to answer. All right, so here now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Third hour of the day would be 9 a.m. They started reckoning at sunset, 6 a.m. Okay, so uh, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, this sermon by the Apostle Peter is intending to address three simple but very significant questions. Number one, what just happened? Number two, why did it happen? And then number three, how should we respond? Let's begin with the first part of the sermon. The most immediate question, of course, everyone in the crowd uh, was asking that day was what in the world just happened? Luke narrates the actual phenomenon this way. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We were up at, um, my, my wife's parents have a, I used to say cottage, but actually they've retired there, so they've turned it into a house. But they have a cottage slash house uh, up in Perry Sound on the lake there. And uh, we were up there last weekend on the Saturday. And uh, you, I don't know if you remember, and I don't know if the weather here was exactly the way it was there, but it was a terrible day weather-wise, so we were mostly inside for the visit. Um, and it, it was raining off and on all day, but then there were uh, bursts of very serious wind. Uh, and if you've ever boated on Georgian Bay or spent any time in, in that area, you know there's nothing quite like a Georgian Bay windstorm. Uh, it, is, it is something to behold. And uh, so we were there in, in the cottage and uh, playing board games and doing the stuff you do on an inside day. Uh, and every once in a while, every 30 or 40 minutes, there was an intense four or five minute period of, of wind. And uh, my, parents are, my parents-in-law are ad- addicted to knowing the weather. So they've got that spinny thing on their, on their, um, their porch that tells them exactly the wind speed. And it, you would just see this massive spike where you wondered, I think this thing is gonna take off and fly away. And, and actually, we, we had some fascia on the front of the cottage ripped off. It was, it was an intense event. And it was interesting because every time it happened, everybody in, in the cottage would stop what they were doing, and you would just experience the event. You would feel the, the beams of the cottage shake a little bit. You would hear the rain uh, being driven against the, the window panes. And then as, as and you'd see outside the windows, you'd see the, the trees uh, bent over, and groaning under the wind, and then as soon as it was over, everybody would run to a window to sort of see what damage there had been. Have you ever been in a house or a cottage during a wind event? I was, uh, I was in our house uh, as a kid growing up. I don't know if you remember, there was a, there was a uh, tornado that tore through Southbury and Bradford uh, back in the early 80s. That was quite notable. I, remember, I used to remember the name of it, but there was there was, a, it was a, we have a, a phrase for it. I can't remember what it was, but I think it was whatever it was, 1984 or something like that. And uh, and I remember I w- was at the house, and it picked up our. We had a pool in the backyard, and it had a um, one of those solar blankets with the the poppy things that your dad got angry at when you popped because it's not for popping. It's anyway that's another story, but. Um, we had one of those rollers, and it, the, the tornado picked it up and dropped it like a spear in, into our, our pool and put a big rip in the liner. There's nothing quite like a wind event, is there? Well, that's what's going on here at the beginning of the story. It, it says, all of a sudden, there came from having the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And that got everyone's attention, as it will do. That rattled everyone's cage. And then when everyone was paying attention, when everyone's eyes were wide open, when the hair on the back of everyone's neck was standing up, then it says, divided tongues as a fire fell from heaven, fire rested on each of the disciples. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they rushed out into the gathered crowd and they began preaching the gospel in all the known languages of the Roman world. And now, Peter stands up in the heart of the crowd to explain this phenomenon. This is what he says. He says, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was offered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to talk about In the last days, God is going to, the Spirit is going to fall and lift up the church. And he's going to do signs and wonders. And it shall come to pass that everyone who Calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We talked about this. So, Peter says that this event, this phenomenon, is the fulfillment of a prophecy made long ago by the prophet Joel that before the great and magnificent day of the Lord, that is to say, before the day of final judgment, God would do something to optimize the conditions for salvation. He would lift up the church, making every member a prophet. And he would do great works of providence in the world, signs in the heavens above and the earth below, to waken men and women from their slumber, so as to undermine the strongholds of doubt and disbelief, such that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's the first part of Peter's message. Now, if you have questions about some of the languages, uh, there's, there's some controversy about some of the phraseology, and then there's some controversy over how do we apply that? What does that actually look like? We talked about that last week. You can go and find that. But the substance is very clear. You can't argue with the substance. Peter is saying, the end times are upon us because the great work of redemption has now been accomplished through the life, death, death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Everything that needed to be done has been done for our salvation. These are the end times, according to Peter. Now, we talked about this as well last week. The end times, we very often think in the West, when we say end times, we think the events that happened just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Certainly, it does sound like there's a particularly intense season of signs and activities just prior to the return of Christ. But technically, and you can see this right here, Peter's saying it's the end times. He said that 2,000 years ago, or just about 2,000 years ago. He says it's the end times because there's nothing standing between us and the next event on the calendar, which is the judgment day. All the great events that the whole Old Testament was talking about, all those events have now happened. In Genesis 3.15, there's a promise that a hero will come, that he will... Uh, defeat our enemy that he will break our bonds that he will restore us to our former dignity and created purpose and that he will bring us back to ourselves and to God at great cost to himself that's the promise in Genesis 3:15 he will crush the serpent's head and he shall bruise his heel and so the whole old testament is about working out what will that require what will that look like and all of that has now been done in the person and work of Christ he came and he lived the life that we could never live. He passed our probation. He obeyed God perfectly. It was always the will of God. Have you ever noticed how all the covenants that you, you run across in the Bible, they're this weird mixture of conditional and unconditional. God says, I will do this, don't you worry. But then it also almost inevitably goes on to say, but if you do this and if you do that, and so you're like, well, what is it? Is it conditional or unconditional? The answer is both. God is determined to do it, but he's determined to do it in his way. And so the disobedience and unfaithfulness of the people often defers, pushes it into the future. By the end of the Old Testament, you think this is never gonna happen. And then an obedient covenant son comes, the seed of Abraham, the son of David. And he lives the human life that we were all supposed to live. He obeys God perfectly. He loves all people perfectly He passes the probation. He positions humanity, again, to be the vice regents of Almighty God. Releasing the blessings of heaven for the prosperity and flourishing of the earth. Praise the Lord. He's done that. But he's done more than that. Not only did he live the perfect life, he died a sacrificial death to pay for all our sins, to wipe out our debt because we as human beings have accumulated a massive debt to our sovereign. We have done damage to ourselves. We have disrespected our creator. That had to be dealt with. The king had to pay for the sins of his people, and Jesus Christ in his body on the cross did exactly that. We know that it was effective, because just like when you get your Interact card out of the machine and it says, finally, it says payment accepted, Remove card, Jesus came out of the grave, was resurrected on the third day to demonstrate God's complete satisfaction with the price that had been offered and to point us the way home, to blaze and light the paths that lead to abundant and eternal life. And then Jesus ascended. He ascended and took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God so that he can begin as the king now to pour out grace and gifts upon his people to enable them to share in the great end times harvest, to do the work that he called them to do, to become the people he intended them to become, to restore us and fit us for eternity. It's all been done. And Peter, when the Holy Spirit falls, is saying, this is that. It's done, right? And then Peter is just, he's just doing what any good Old Testament reader would do. He's saying, that means these are the last days, brothers, because if that has all been done, the only thing left on the calendar, like if there were six beads Somebody's got to come. Somebody's got to live. Somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to rise again. Somebody's got to ascend. All those things have happened. There's only one bead left, and that's the great and awesome day of the Lord, the day of final judgment. So Peter's just doing what any Old Testament reader would do. He'd be like, we're in the last days. We're in the last days. And therefore, he's he's saying, that's why the Holy Spirit has come. There's nothing, there's nothing left between this day and, and that day in terms of what needs to be done for our redemption. There's a day coming, the great and awesome day of the Lord. John, The Apostle John had a vision about that day. He said, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's, that's judgment day. That is the great and magnificent day of the Lord. And on that day, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. So if you aren't reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will be condemned, you will be cast out, and you will not enter into the world that will be reconstituted on the other side. And so Peter says to this crowd in Jerusalem, many of whom would have witnessed the great acts of redemption, many of whom would have been in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Peter says to those people, that day, the day of judgment is coming and that judgment will be final and that destiny will be awful. And so to maximize your opportunity to hear about the salvation of God through Christ. The Holy Spirit has fallen now in the church to open our mouths, to give power to our words, and he has descended to the earth to do great works of awakening providence in advance, such that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is that, Peter says. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit has come. The last chapter has begun. Now, let me tell you why. That's where Peter goes next in the second section of his sermon. Look again at verses 22 to 24. After explaining the phenomenon, what just happened, Peter begins to build a theological foundation. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter says that Jesus died and rose again, which proves that he was the Messiah of God. The Messiah had to suffer. The king had to pay for the sins Of his people. But because the king was also the son of God, that suffering could not defeat him. Rather, he triumphed over it and rose victorious from the dead, just like the Bible predicted. Peter then refers to that very interesting prophecy of David in Psalm 16. The Messiah was to be the son of David. Everyone in the Old Testament knew that. Uh, Everyone after uh, the promise was made to David certainly knew that. And David, as a prophet, would sometimes speak in the voice of Messiah. That's why so many of the prophetic passages in the New Testament are actually pinned to a psalm, which is just interesting. Most of us read the psalms for help in our own prayer life, which is, by the way, perfectly legitimate. I would even argue that's probably the primary. Pastor Matt uh, did a fantastic job of that today. I love how Matt, Pastor Matt does that. He, he always begins the prayer time with a psalm. Have you seen that? And then he'll use the rhythms and emphases of the psalm to expand our own prayer life. Because when we pray, what do we, we always just do the same thing. Dear Jesus, help Aunt Sue with her wonky hip and help me to win the lottery. Amen. Uh, and God's up there going, you know, there's more than that. So uh, I love what Pastor Matt did. And that's the, that's, I would say that's the majority or primary use of the psalms. And yet have you noticed how often the prophetic passages in the New Testament pin themselves to the psalms? as Peter is doing here, why? Because David wrote many slash most of the Psalms. David was a prophet, Peter tells us that. And so in the spirit, sometimes David would slip into the voice of Jesus in the Old Testament. Did you know that? That's by by the way why red letter Bibles are, are a waste of time. All the letters in the Bible should be red letters, That's right, because they're all from Jesus. But then also, if you're just going to put the direct words of Jesus in red letters, there's an awful lot of words in the Psalms that should be in red letters because sometimes David and the Spirit would slip into the voice of Jesus. He would begin speaking and writing and praying in the voice of Messiah. And, and Peter tells us that's what's going on here. He quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Hebrew word Sheol there means grave or death. And Peter says, now wait a second. Y'all know that you can visit when you come in for pilgrimage for Pentecost. You can visit David's tomb and he's in there. So is David speaking about himself there? He says, no, no, in in the spirit, Jesus, David is, is speaking about Jesus. David is saying that Messiah knows that he will never be abandoned to the grave. He will die, but he won't stay dead. He will go down to the dead, but he will arise victorious. Messiah knew that, and Jesus did that. Ergo, Peter says, Jesus is the Messiah, and you just witnessed the greatest redemptive event in human history. That's the punchline in the middle part of the sermon. Look at verse 22. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Tyndale New Testament commentary does a great job of summarizing Peter's summary, his conclusion. It says this, since God had raised Jesus from death, it followed that he was the Messiah and it was in consequence of this that he had poured out the Spirit. If the Messiah, the son of David, the king, if Jesus is that, which he obviously is because he just rose from the dead, if he is that, then he has taken his seat now at the right hand of the throne of God, which is where the Messiah was always going to end up, and he is prepared to rule now over the newly constituted heavens and earth in the new kingdom. And it's obviously as king, obviously in anticipation of that, that he has poured out the Holy Spirit that you have just seen and heard. This is Peter saying, this is what this is all about. Listen up. The king is on the throne. The kingdom is about to come. Why has he poured out this Holy Spirit then? This is the king opening the gate so that all people may enter through into the celestial kingdom. This is that. That's what Peter says. Now remember, Peter had heard Jesus telling stories all the time about the great lengths that the king would go to to bring people into his joy. Do you remember the parable of the banquet? The master wanted the banquet to be full. So he said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. By the way, as you hear that, does anybody, anybody identify with one of those categories? Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and, and byways, the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This is that, Peter says. This is King Jesus optimizing the conditions for salvation. This is Jesus compelling people to enter into the joy of, of his kingdom. He has sent the Holy Spirit to turn the whole community into a giant burning bush to make every member of the covenant community a spirit-filled prophet of God. And then he sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit to do great works in the heavens above and great works on the earth below, which as we talked about yesterday is apocalyptic language for great works of providence in the big picture world and in the small picture world of your life. The Holy Spirit has come to be like a bulldozer before every spirit-filled evangelist in the kingdom of God. You go out to speak to people and you think, this person's never gonna listen to me. And God says, try me. You speak and you don't know that this morning God rattled their cage. They are so sure that they know how the world is working and then next week God turns the world upside down on his ear. This is This is the plan. It's a two-part plan. You go out and speak, the Holy Spirit will go before you and rattle people's cages and overturn the hardened soil in human hearts such that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is that. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of invitation. It's here now. It's here now, Peter is saying, but who knows how long it will last? Who knows? Now, today is the day of salvation. Today, everyone who comes in is sent out. Today, everyone who comes in has a light turned on inside of them. They become a spirit filled witness. They become a servant. That's how it works in the great banquet, right? As soon as you come in, a seat is reserved for you. That's your seat. But then you're sent out to get other people. Every saved one is a servant. Everyone brought in is is sent out. This is the day of invitation. But who knows how long it will last because there's nothing. There is nothing on the agenda between this event, Peter says, and the next event, which is the great day of God. Jesus said that most people won't even see it coming when it comes. He said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. The last day will come like a flood. It'll be again like it was in Noah's day. It's interesting. You've heard me say many times, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that the best lens or best analogy for anticipating uh, what's going to happen in the Christian life, the, the sort of our forward journey, is by looking back. He says, all these stories in the Old Testament, they've been left there in in the Bible for your instruction. Do you ever wonder why the, the flood story is still in the Bible? Why do we need that? It is It is the scariest story in the Bible. It's. I think you could argue it's. it's I'm using air quotes. It's the worst story in the Bible, and it always amuses me that um, when somebody has a new baby, we give them those uh, the, the baby mobile with the Ark story on it. You know, like you know, you know that story where everyone on the earth but eight people were killed by God. The kids would love that. That will help them sleep peacefully in their cribs. Just the thought that wrath could fall at any time and wipe us all out. I, I honestly, to, I, I don't understand why that's a good gift for children. Uh, I hope there's some gospel impetus behind that. I don't know, or whether you just think the zebra is super cute. Uh, I, but that's the story. The, the story of, of the ark is that God told Noah that in the future there would be this act of, of real, strong, horrific judgment. But the, the message of, because remember, we're talking about a God who takes extreme measures against sin but a God who also is fiercely loving and loyal towards his people. These, these themes are all over the Bible. So God says to Noah, this, this time a great judgment is coming, but the good news is I want you to build an, an enormous vessel that will allow everyone uh, to, be, to be saved. And so Peter, actually, who appears to have thought about this more than any of the other apostles, like, why this delay? What's this all about? He says that Peter was a preacher of righteousness. That's the only reason we know, we, we know that. So he says, Peter, so he was building the ark, and he was obviously extending the invitation, come on in. And, and the angels were, were going out, apparently, or some, somebody was going out, the angels, I assume, were going out and bringing all the animals. You remember the a- animals arrived two by two, and, and in nice little groupings of seven, if they were sacrificial animals, and nice little groupings of two, and you think, okay, animals don't normally do that. So somebody's going out and gathering them, and they all go up through the door as the ark is completed. Do you remember that? But then the scariest part of the story is that once the rains begin to fall, do you remember what the Bible says? God shut the door. God shut the door. Once the judgment begins to fall, there is no opportunity for repentance and salvation. Otherwise, it's not faith It's not faith when you get on the ark during the rain. Now, here's what's interesting. It doesn't matter how you read the book of Revelation. I know there are different ways of reading it. Some people read it. uh, what's called progressive parallelism, meaning they think that most of the visions in the book of Revelation are all explaining the same period of time between the ascension of Christ and his return. And you just kind of like transparency slides, layer them on top of each other, and you get the whole picture. That's the, probably the most common way of reading the book of Revelation. Then there are others who say, no, 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 it's, it's consecutive. So you, you take each vision and you, you, you stack them up line to line and you get a timeline. Whatever, I won't even get into that right now. It doesn't matter. Point is, both systems agree, when you get to the end, when the rains are actually falling, the door has clearly been shut because it says in all of those visions, no one repented, everyone continued to curse God. What's the point? The point is when the rains start to fall, God shuts the door. And, and we're being told that the second coming, the, the end will be like that. So if your life plan, if your game plan is to wait until you see the storm clouds and then I'll repent after I've lived my life and done everything I want to do, but when I see the clouds on the horizon, that, that is a fool's errand. That is a foolish plan. Because what we're actually being told is that the help of God is actually removed at the end. So what, what Peter is saying here is that right now the conditions are optimal. You, you've got every member of, every truly saved member of the, of the covenant community has the help of God inside them to speak this gospel. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the world and in the events of your life to, to draw you so it's, it's like those angels helping the animals, the, those dumb animals, helping them right up the ramp and, and through the gate. You've got the Holy Spirit guiding you by the hand and you've got a compelling invitation ringing in your ears. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. That's what Peter's saying. I don't, I don't know how long it will last. Could, could last another hundred years, could last another hundred days, could last another... We don't know, right? The bottom line is this. The king has taken his seat. The king has sent out his servants to invite and even compel people in. The conditions have been optimized. So come. Come quickly. Or when he comes, you will be swept away. The earth will be burned up and dissolved as once a great flood washed away the effects and stain of sin. So in the future, a wave of fire will scrub and renew the entire cosmos. And then the world will begin again. And only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life will be included in it. That is the apostolic gospel. That is the essential sermon Of the church. And when people heard it, they responded as shaken and awakened people will. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Which leads us to the concluding section of Peter's sermon, the response section. Peter answered them, saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'm not sure how much help you need to understand that. Repent and be baptized. Right uh, Peter, again, it, it, it seems that Peter thought a lot about this. Peter, in First Peter chapter three, actually compares the act of baptism to entering the ark. He says, "Baptism, which corresponds to this." So it's a, it's a perfect metaphor. When, when you repent, you're turning your back on the world, which you have to do to enter the ark. You have to say, you have to leave your home, you can't bring that with you, right? you got to share a, a bay with an elephant, right. You, You have to turn your back on the world. You have to walk up a narrow plank. You have to enter through a narrow gate into a world and a hope and a future on the other side. Peter says baptism, which corresponds to this, right? That's what it means to repent. It means to turn your back on the world. And then baptism, Peter says, is not just a mere washing of water. It's not magic water. But if in your baptism that is your appeal to God for a clean conscience and a fresh start and a new creation, then it's saving. The faith is saving. And so repent and be baptized. That's the call, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what God promised. This is what God promised back in Genesis three fifteen for you and for your children, all those who have wandered far away. He said a Savior would come, born of a woman, who would defeat our enemy at great cost to himself, who would bring us back to God, He said that he would reverse the curse. He said that he would end the exile. He said that he would break our chains. He said that he would end our slavery and bring us home. This is that, Peter says. And it's for you. It's for you and it's for your kids. So come. Come to the waters. You know, there's so many of us in here who are trying to pass off kids or pass off faith to our kids and I don't even know if it's, if it's in us, right? You can't pass off something to your kids that's not real in you. And so maybe you've been in here for a long time and it's time for you to come. Come. You've, you've got to go through the waters. You go first. It's like, it always reminds me of that... Um, that airplane safety video, you know, and it says if the airplane's about to crash, by the way, if the airplane's about to crash, you got a lot of problems, right? I don't know if the air oxygen thing is your big deal, but whatever. When the, when the, when the airplane's about to crash, it says all the oxygen masks are gonna fall down. And what does it say moms and dads are supposed to do? Put yours on first. You know, there's lots of folks here. And always, and I've talked to people who've got saved in this church because they brought their kids here. They figured their kids needed it. And it's like, I'll sit in the back and snore through your sermons while the kids are downstairs hearing in children's ministry about Jesus. I figure they need it. Listen, friend, you need it. You need it. Put your own mask on. And when your own mask is on and you've got the help of the Holy Spirit, then turn and talk to your kids, right? So this is for you. This is for your children. Come to the waters. Die to yourself. Die to this dying world. Go under the waters and be saved from the fire that is coming. Arise and be made new. Arise to the world that is coming. Arise as a servant and go and tell others. Arise and serve the king who is seated and reigning over all. That's the message. That's the gospel. And this is the word of the Lord that the church of Jesus Christ has been preaching ever since. Thanks be to God. Ellison, listen, before, before we pray... There's, there's no way uh, we could preach a, s- a sermon on this text about how the Holy Spirit has optimized the, the conditions for response and not offer people the chance to response. And, and so in, in, we've, we've warmed up the water. We've done our part to optimize. You know, the Holy Spirit's taking care of all the big stuff. Uh, Jesus is taking care of all the big stuff. What we've done on our end is make sure that the water is a pleasant temperature. And then we've also made sure that we've got the long T-shirts and the robes and the uh, bathing suit bottoms and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that, that I've noticed over the years is that there are always some people in a church who have a variety of excuses as to why they have not been baptized. Now, listen, that I, think in a, I think in a room of this size, 90% of us are hearing that sermon as a call to urgency. I did. I did. That was the that's how it landed on me on Tuesday. I always tell you God preaches these sermons to me on Tuesday and then and then it's my job to preach them to you on Sunday. That's how it fell on me. I've been baptized. I got baptized in 1984. Okay? So how did this sermon fall on me? It fell on me as a rebuke because I I am by personality an incrementalist. I am a slow and steady wins the race guy, put one foot in front of the other. I make long plans. I am preaching and podcasting my way through the entire Bible. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. It's going to take me 30 years. What kind of a lunatic undertakes a 30-year project? Me. I I am an incrementalist by personality. Some of you were like, yeah, who is this lunatic, and where can we find him? It's me. Anyway. I, I felt God saying, Paul, you cannot take this same incrementalist approach to everything you do in life, and you certainly can't take it with respect to evangelism. I've got 30-year plans for witnessing to my neighbors, some of whom are not going to be alive in 10 years. And so that's how it landed on me. I felt the Lord saying, Paul, you need, to, you need a higher sense of urgency. You think you know, you don't know, you don't know when the second coming of the Lord is. You don't know when the day of judgment is, and you can't take such a long-term approach to everything you do. It's good for some things. It's not good for evangelism. That's how it hit me. I'm guessing that's how it hit 90% of the people in the room. But in a room of this size, there are always gonna be people who the Holy Spirit has been tugging and pulling, and you've been putting up excuse after excuse as to why you haven't done this. You say, well, you know, uh, Holy Spirit or, or pastor or whoever's asking My grandmother is Lutheran, you see, and and so I don't know. I don't know if she would be offended if I got baptized by immersion in a Baptist church. Boy, Pastor, I just don't know. Or, you know, Pastor, I'd really like it if my Aunt Sue could be here, and she's only here once a year, and the last time she was here, she had COVID, so, gee, I just don't know when this is all going to come together. Or, Pastor, you know, gee, I just don't know um, because I don't like public speaking. Well, like I said, we've optimized the conditions you got a great excuse for Aunt Sue as to to why you didn't invite her to the baptism because you just found out about it four minutes ago. And you don't have to do any any public speaking. All you have to do is answer two questions. When you leave and you go out through the door, Pastor Matt's going to ask you two questions. Did you receive the word of God with faith this morning? Yes or no? Are you ready to profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes or no? He'll ask you the same two questions in front of all of us in the tank after that. And if you can say yes four times in the space of two minutes, that's all you got to say. You know, in the Bible, there's not a lot of the accoutrements and surroundings to baptism that we think are important. When the Ethiopian eunuch finally got the gospel and the Holy Spirit tugged on his heart, they stopped the chariot and he asked the question, Here is water. What is to prevent me from getting baptized? Nobody, well, your Aunt Sue never heard about it and, and your grandpa was Jewish and uh, no, 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 no. Here is water. The Holy Spirit speaking. Today's the day of salvation. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Those are good questions. And I'm going to give you about 30 seconds. I'm going to just well, have a pause because you need to do business with the Holy Spirit. I don't want you just caught up in a crowd thing. If the Holy Spirit is, is touching your heart today and saying, today's the day. Today is the day. Let's get it done. Then you just, you go with the Holy Spirit to your excuses and say, well, what about Aunt Sue? And what about you go with him? You, you do business. And then I'll pray. And then the worship team will come up and play a a worship song. And if you want, if the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart, you can go out there right now and have that two-question conversation with Pastor Matt. All right, let's have 30 seconds of silence and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for doing everything needed for our salvation. Lord, I want to thank you for who you are. I thank you that you didn't lower the bar. You just raised the level of help. I thank you that you still hate sin because sin is what is destroying us. Sin is what is destroying our society. Sin is what is destroying our families. Sin is what is corrupting and diminishing our souls. So, Lord, I'm glad you still hate sin. I'm glad you're still severe against it but I'm also thankful for the incredible help that you have given us because of your great love, because of your steadfastness, because of your faithfulness. I'm thankful for the great help that you've given us through the person and work of Christ. Thankful that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. I'm thankful that he paid for what we have done in his body on the cross. I'm thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit is right now in hearts, but also just in this place, poking and prodding and, and, doing works of providence, great and small, to optimize the conditions for salvation. I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you'd help people to respond as you would have them to do, not as I have planned or not as I have thought, but as you would have them to do. And Lord, as we have optimized the conditions, all those that you would want to take advantage of them, I pray would do so with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.